Brilliant. Okay. Good afternoon. <laughs> Good afternoon to you too. How are you, Professor Agassi? I'm fine, thank you very much. You look gorgeous. Oh, thank you, thank you. It's only the lightning, you know. It's it's a it's a fiction, uh, the fiction world, you know. It's the metaverse. <laughs> thank you. You're too kind. Thank you. I must say that I mean, and I feel it's it's a very important, you know, moment for me as a person, you know, as a human being to meet you. Beyond, you know, beyond the discussion that we are having, because. I've been listening to you and I must tell you that you convey such a sense of uh, humbleness and, and um, deep empathy to the human condition, even though you're talking about, you know, so many subjects, but in the end of it, there is a sense of courageous uh, uh, humbleness and a deep empathy for, for, for the humankind. It's only awareness of human suffering. Yeah, yeah, but still, it, it's, it's, so first of all, thank you. I know it took us a while <laughs> because of the corona and on all the other issues. So I just want to present you, if it's okay, to our audience here in Israel and also uh, in other parts of the world, because we have uh, fortunately, uh, you know, a various, uh, you know, uh, groups of people, Jewish, uh, the Jewish congregation and others that are listening to us. So uh, I'm, I'm incredibly excited and, and, and I have done, I don't even have the words for that. Okay. <laughs> to, okay. To, <laughs> to introduce you, to introduce you, Professor uh, Joseph Agassi. He is an Israeli academic uh, with contribution to logic, scientific uh, method, uh, philosophy. He, he's, he, he likes to introduce himself as a philosopher without religion, but with a real religious background, and probably he can also talk about that. And uh, we are going to talk about in Israel, which is an official uh, Jewish state, but with a society that rejects the value of Juda values of Judaism, while the opposite is required to recognize Israel as a secular state and a Jewish society, but with a Jewish values and cultures, culture in its heart. So I think this is this is going to be the topic. But because uh, Professor Agassi has such deep understanding regarding science and the nature and 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 everything in between, and sometimes you don't have to say in between, but you know there is a collaboration between science and 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 and, and nature. I wanted to start with him with a question which is so relevant to this time of disruption, which is the issue, the subject of validity, of uh, which you know, you know, leads us usually to feeling secure and safe, and the opposite, the unknown, and so forth in our world. How can you? I know that these issues are very dear to your heart. Would you like to share and teach us a little bit huh, about your point of view about that? Yes, because of my religious background, it always puzzled me that philosophers look for certitude. There is no certitude. There can be no certitude. Uh, life is a window of opportunity and we have to seize the day. And that is all there is to it. I think that anybody who is familiar with any religion is aware of the profound skepticism that all religion conveys they trust not in humans, but in the rock of the ages. This is what the book, the Psalms says, 
And this is what Spinoza says when he wants to defend Machiavelli, that Machiavelli's major thesis is trust not princess. May I ask, I think that you, if, if it's okay that I'm asking and if it's not a, in, an invasion to your privacy, I think that it's a very deep notion that you believe from very young age. I mean, in a sense, you rebelled in, in when you were younger, when you were quite oh, young. Yes, I rebelled because at the age of 16 or so, I lost God and I looked hard for him. I looked wow. everywhere. How, how, what does it mean you lost God? I mean, how can someone lose God? You That's probably me. lost. Yeah, of but course. Because it means that you had God, which is in any case a very unusual state. Where I never I, had God. I grew up religious. I took my religion as given, as a matter of course. And at the, about the age of 16, two things bothered me. First, that I found it difficult to pray. I didn't know that Maimonides says it's not allowed to pray. Maimonides says, you say your prayer because you are instructed to. But if you think that the Lord has nothing to do but to listen to you and to have you beg him for any small thing that you need, this is sacrilegious. And I didn't know that. And the other thing is that I found uh, illiberalism in the Jewish tradition, which I found hard to take. There is a story of a man who collected wood on the Sabbath and Moses had him stoned to death. And this bothered me greatly. Mm. How, how come he, you know, this was such a harsh punishment for, you know, you know, a, a small mistake. It's, I mean, I, I mean the, the, the relationship between the... This is very hard to take. Moses is the paradigm of the ideal human in Jewish tradition. And he had a man stoned to death. And because of violation of some rule that hurts nobody, it would be easier to take it if the men were a murderer rather than a man who collected wood on the Sabbath. I see. So, so, so from this, so this was your, I mean, the, I wouldn't say Eureka moment, but this is where you said you parted. I mean, the, the gap started. I mean, this is what, okay, wow. Wow. This, as I told you, two things that I couldn't pray and that I found Judaism illiberal. Interesting. Even though you're in your heart Jewish, right? Oh, yes, decidedly. I deeply regret that Israel is anti Jewish. Okay, we will get to there. Can we speak about certainty and uncertainty? Because right now, you know, people all around feel, you know, you know, such a, a huge amount of uncertainty and they don't know how to deal with it. That's and very funny because people invest in the stock exchange without any hesitation and there's nothing more uncertain than the stock exchange. So how, how do you think, why do you think it's happening? Why people are so willing to put all the money in the stock exchange uh, if there is such a high uncertainty regarding the, the outcome of such an act? 
because they consider the betting fair. Mm. The concept of fair betting is traditional. Can you elaborate? Can you tell? Yes, when they found out that out of 10 boats from Italy to Caesarea, nine reached Caesarea, they knew that you have to insure a boat for at least 10% of its worth. I see. That's a bet. Okay, wonderful. And I think you have, if I'm not mistaken, I read some things, not enough, unfortunately, but you think that uncertainty is a, has a crucial role in scientific work. Oh, decidedly so. The, the statistics appears in physics from the start, and yet there was always the supposition that the statistics is due to uncertainty of lack of knowledge. This is how Pascal Laplace, who is one of the leaders in the field, spoke about statistics. He said it is a degree of ignorance. And Einstein tried very hard to check that in quantum theory, you can say that. And he arrived at the difficulty that we still don't know how to handle a difficulty well known as the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paradox. Rosen, by the way, was a professor in Haifa. Okay, and if I'm not mistaken, when you were quite young and you put it on the table while you st were still a student, you, I mean, there were harsh reactions against I that. Yes, I, I was a difficult student, both in the rabbinical school and in the university, <laughs> so I have a double stigma. Yes. Why do you think it was so hard for people to accept that something that, if I'm not mistaken, was already said before by Einstein, not, nonetheless? So why, because, why this? Yeah. Because of a very simple uh, philosophical issue. When you grow up, you find out that not everybody belongs to your culture, that there are different cultures. And then you ask yourself, why am I clinging to my culture? Is it just that I was lucky to be born into the right culture? And this problem, which the Greeks raised with all its power, was solved by Plato, who said, once you are certain, you know that you are right. And this is true, only it's excessive. You can be right without being certain, and you can be certain and misunderstand what you are certain about. So everything is open. I, and again, I got this from my religion. Uh, they say in the prayer, if a human would live thousands of years, he still won't uh, be able to follow your calculations. Your means the Lord's. Yes, I see. <laughs> But I think, if I'm not mistaken, that you also think that it's a practical tool to be uncertain. I mean, I mean, it's 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 a state of mind, but also it's like a real tool, right? Meaning, indeed, indeed. If everything is predetermined, then you cannot do anything. And if we assume that we are able to influence, to to act in the world, then there should be some open options which means uncertainty. 
you know, one of my teachers, Kevin Cayley, I don't know whether you were, you, you know, Kevin Cayley, he was, uh, he created Wired, which is a technology, yes. okay. Yes. And he's, yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's a very wise person. And he said something very interesting. He says that when there is an acceleration of knowledge, and if you understand that every good answer is simply a door for better questions. Yes, that's very so nice. So he says that it's, if you're doing the right thing, the amount of ignorance is doubling every time you have an answer. This is already in Plato. Socrates said that. Really? Can, can, can you tell me? I didn't know that. Okay, can yes, you tell that, us? That, uh, every knowledge raises more problems than it solves. Mm. Yes, certainly. Okay. Okay, so, so when you teach, you know, your students or you mentor people, how do you assist them becoming, instead of just, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say an, an, an academic concept to an everyday tool? I have a, one standard answer. Why are you here? Why do you do what you're doing? What moves you? And people are often surprised by this question. People come to me for help in writing doctorates. I, I, I'm known for being able to help people who are stuck with the doctorates. And my first question is, why do you want a doctorate? And usually people are stunned by the question, which stuns me. I, this is the most obvious question. Why that being stunned, do you think? Because they never thought about it. They took things yeah. for granted, which is fine when yeah. you are growing up but not when you are elderly. Okay, so what, you, what do you usually answer? What do you usually answer? I usually uh, advise people, for example, yeah. my best advice is don't read a book you don't want to read. This is a part, by the way, of Socrates' advice of not doing what you don't want to do. Socrates said his greatness was that he refused to do what he didn't want to do. Mm. Meaning, in a sense, it's more important to make a decision what you don't want to do than what you want to do. Exactly so. Now, many people told me, if I took your advice, I would stay in bed all day long. Really? Was, oh, my God. So they said, and I, I said to them, try it and see what happens. <laughs> and did they do it? Usually, they are too much afraid. No? Mm. Meaning you are showing them that there is a way to let go. That only... is the right word, you are wonderful, yes. Okay, so only when you let go from what you think is the right thing or the way things supposed to be or what the way, the way you think you should be, you are free to discover the true nature, the, the true nature or the real purpose or whatever is behind the veil. Is This is quite so. Quite generally, when you want to find out where a wall stands, you have to try to step over it, move to the other side to see that the wall is there. You have to know a boundary set can't from both sides. So you mm -hmm. have to exaggerate. If you have a sailboat, you use your sail a bit more than necessary and you go back because then you know where the wind should use mm. the, mm. the, the, the say. I, 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 my, my 
mind wander to the issue of the mirror. Yes. And I'm just, I was thinking, you know, you're standing in front of a mirror and then if you let go, what are you going to see in the mirror? Exactly, people are afraid to look at the mirror. Yeah, wow. So, so in your work, I mean, how did you use you know, validity and certainty and uh, on the other hand, willing to let go. Where did these things lead you in your work? First of all, as I told you, I never sought certitude. And when I studied philosophy, which goes all around certitude, I was very surprised. And I had to understand why people sought certitude. It's not a psychological question. It is uh, an epistemological question. It's a question of what do I know and do I know that I know and so on. And we don't, all our knowledge is conjectural. When you look at the history of ideas of thinking, you find that you have sympathy with certain thinkers and no sympathy with other thinkers. And it has to do with their centering on their problems. And if you have any empathy, when you read anybody, you ask, why did that person write the book? And if you don't know why that person wrote the book, the book is closed to you. And usually a good writer says in the preface why they wrote the book. But out of a very poor tradition, we don't read prefaces. I remember the textbooks in my uh, very early days, there were prefaces to the teacher. So the preface mm -hmm. to the teacher that you said the student was not expected to read the preface. That is wow. to say compulsory education is really the enemy. Wow. Ooh. Can you elaborate on that? This is... Uh... <laughs> the answer is very philosophical and very straightforward. It's forbidden to teach. Hmm. Meaning you only give, you should give people the tools to learn by themselves, to investigate the world, to explore. Exactly. exactly. This is the very famous parable of the difference between fish and an angling uh, rod. I see. Meaning only give them, you know, uh, the, you know. The angling rod, not the fish, yeah. yes. Yeah, not the fish, okay. But are you, I mean, but what you're saying, if I may say, which I, I you know, I, I so totally identify, but for our listeners, you also, it means that you have deep faith in people's ability to learn. In no, the, no, 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 in people's wish to learn. Okay, okay. And meaning in their curiosity. Exactly so. You're quite right. Okay. And curiosity is inbuilt. My teacher Papa says even uh, puppies wish to learn. Even puppies, yeah, yeah, they do. I have a puppy, so I know. <laughs> very, yeah. She's very naughty. Yeah, she wants to learn everything, but you know, on my, you know, in, on my expense. In a on sense. your expense, yes. Very nice. Yes, you're quite right. Yes. So that's interesting. So. If I may say, we, I, we need to speak about science, but because it's so interesting. If you have the, if you now have the ability to create, you know, the school of the future, especially because now we are in creative destruction, you know, this, whatever. What, what you, and everybody knows that, you know, the knowledge of yesterday, the certainty of yesterday is totally irrelevant, even might yeah. be dangerous. What would you teach? My, my model is Summerhill. Summerhill was a school that rests on two assumptions. First of all, that compulsory education is unavoidable. Secondly, that one should not educate. 
Mm. That is to say, compulsory education is two items. First, gathering kids in one uh, uh, place. My son calls it minimum security jail. And I think this is right. And I think we can't avoid it. However, negative it is, we have to control our kids to some extent and we have no time for it. So we have these schools which are minimum security jails. But inside, you should have things that arouse appetites. You should have books, you should have tape. You should have uh, play things, toys of all sorts. Uh, you should have adults helping kids develop their interests <coughs> and so on. But the free school is something that creates enormous opposition from parents. And, and did your children went to such a school? Uh, one, yes, one not. It was a matter of conditions of possibility. Mm. Uh, my daughter went to Montessori school, which is half mm. free. Maria Montessori was the first Italian woman doctor. And she tells the story in, how, in her autobiography that she saw a little girl playing on the floor and she picked her up and the little girl continued playing, not noticing that she was picked up because she was concentration. And Maria Montessori says, at this very moment, I realized that everything they told me about kids is wrong. Wow. That's wow. a marvelous thing, isn't it? Yeah, she it is. was really a great character. Wow. I, I, I have a mixed feeling about her philosophy because she said kids play if not on the table, under the table, so better mix toys with learning. And I think learning and playing can come together. Do, do you know the Ken Robinson famous story that about the, the girl who was uh, in the kindergarten and she was drawing and then the, you know, the teacher came in and said, listen, we are having lunch, please come. She says, no, 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 I'm paying God uh, eating lunch. And uh, the teacher says, but no one knows how God looks. And she says, well, they will know in a minute. That's it. So, <laughs> yes, yes, very nice. Yes. It's a, yeah, yeah, he was, you know, unfortunately he's not with us yes. anymore, but at least yeah. in spirit still with us, but unfortunately yeah. not with the body. But yeah, so yeah, he, he, you know, he was definitely speaking about that, yeah. you know, uh, in many ways. So, so if we take it, further and, and, and the learning not on a personal level, but as, as, a, as a culture, I say, sorry, it's a civilization, it's a society. Where do you put science? Where is the, where, where would you put science? How much energy resources should be put to, who, if you could, if you could do something and create a new, a new, I don't know, framework and also, um, I don't know, so resources for science. What would you do, especially if under this, uh, you know? I, I want to tell you, my late wife was very interested in promoting women's equality. And she found out that in Kibbutzim, girls are receiving poorer education than boys, although the educators do not uh, differentiate between them. And she tried to find out, and she found empirically that little girls in kibbutzim are not as motivated to study because they look around and see that women are discriminated against. This is a very powerful perception. In other words, when kids look around, 
first of all, they find discriminations. They also find that the parents fight. And as Janusz Korczak said, if the parents conceal the fighting, then kids learn both to fight and to be a hypocrite. <laughs> it's marvelous. Yes. So the main thing is to respect children. I'm a great follower of Janusz Korczak. If you respect children, everything settles in its place. Now people say, how can you respect children when they are with so little capacities. And Korczak said, old people also have little capacities. Treat children like old people, that would be fine. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. May wonderful. I ask what is, your, what, do you, what is your opinion about Winnicott? About Winnicott? Donald Winnicott, yeah, Winnicott. I, I have great sympathy with him. There's no question that he, he was very sensitive. That's the most important thing about him. Yeah, and no one could, it's very interesting because you created some wonderful methods, but no one is capable, you know, of really, I mean, yes. it's very hard to. Yes, methods are a matter of contingency. It depends on the conditions and what is expected and so on. Certainly, uh, by the way, there is no question that countries under siege have education different from countries that are in peace. So the, all these things have to be considered, but there are technicalities. The principle is respect children. Respect the children, they okay. Deserve respect like everybody else. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree. You know this story of, um, I think Vir Virginia Satir. You know she is the mother of uh, Virginia Satir. She's, uh, well, she she's like the creator of uh, this. You know, looking at the family as as a system and. Um, oh, yes, I don't so, know. I regret to say yes. Uh, she's very interesting character, very colorful. And anyway, she is. She has this. Uh, she has this, she had these parents coming, you know, and complaining about the child, five years old. She says, you know, go down to this, you know, there is a shop here, you know, for any kind of, uh, you know, things that you, if you sewing things. So go and buy yourself some small cushions and go all day on these cushions, you know, in this, uh, in this height and see how the world looks <laughs> when you're so short and then come and stick with me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's very much, very much indeed. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was very clever. So, so. I think I read some things that you 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 wrote and you talk well at least I understood that way that you put a lot of emphasis and I it was very fascinating for me because it's also related to uncertainty and, and and you know you know opening options on the value and depth of questions yes certainly uh, I <laughs> I, I, I must tell you, when I met Karl Popper, my teacher, uh, he wanted to find out something about me. He said, how can I help you? And so on. It was very nice. And I said, I have a crazy idea that nobody takes seriously. And that is people think that we go from answers to answers. And I think we go from questions to better questions. And for this reason, he accepted me as a student. Wow. Wow. Can you tell to our audience what does it mean? Can you teach us what does it mean going not from answer to answers but the question? Can you give us some example? And if you have a series of ups and downs, the question is, are you up or are you down? <laughs> Schopenhauer said, People say we go from happiness to happiness, and I say we go from misery to misery. <laughs> That's Schopenhauer, he was a pessimist. Oh, dear, I can understand. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, see, when we look around, we look at our immediate past, 
we can always see missed opportunities. This is the standard fact. We don't see the opportunities or we don't seize them. This is why the Roman uh, slogan sees the day because people don't. And the question is, how, how can you explain this? And the answer is we just don't look or we are just too busy or we are afraid. Mm. The can you, question can you, is, yeah. as every soldier will tell you when you are in the front, people, tell you, don't worry that you are afraid. Don't let fear come direct you. But it's, it's of course, it's, it's, it's not relevant because you're totally frightened. Yes, I, I haven't been to the war. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a woman, but I'm saying, I can't even know. So, but, you know, I think about it. Well, probably you're totally frightened. What do you mean? You know, this is, this is even, it's, a, it's like, a, it's even a biological mechanism, you know, the surviving mechanism. It has nothing to do even with your, with your exactly. mind, with your brain, now, in, in the sense. Quite right, that's it. The question is, how do you behave under fear, not how do you avoid fear? So this is really the big question. This is the big question. May I ask you something which is a little bit personal, but if I'm invading, please let me know. No problem. I don't you know anything to hide. <laughs> no. For me, even though, I wasn't born at that point, of course. The Holocaust is like, uh, it's, uh, it's like, you know, it's an enormous event. Let's put it this way, you know, a tragic Decidedly. event. Decidedly. And, you know, I, I find myself, you know, uh, it's okay that there is a day, you know, that uh, everybody has to remember Holocaust. I, I don't think there is a day that goes by without me thinking about the Holocaust. I, I don't feel, and then there is the question about when what you said right now, because I, I'm quite sure that people at the Holocaust in the camps were always under fear. I mean, there is no question. I mean, there was- No question about it. You could have died every minute and- uh, Yeah, life was very cheap, yes. Yeah, yeah, death was very cheap, unfortunately. And, and I was wondering how can you, take the idea of um, how do you act un under fear and relate to such extreme situation, which unfortunately can arise around the, yeah. On the Holocaust, I have two private stories. One, my mother-in-law was in concentration camps for seven years, both in Russia and in Germany. And- uh, Wow. Both, but she, twice, she, yeah, oh my God. Yeah, and she wrote in her autobiography that people asked her how she survived and she answered because of friendships. Wow. And uh, my wife wrote about the camps, wrote very interesting books. And she spoke there about a new concept that is camp families in the concentration camps. There were people who were a bit stronger and they collected weaker people around them. And these were camp families between two and more people. And that this had survival. They say, if you belong to a camp family, you had a better chance to survive, not because of objective conditions, because these were the same, but because of different attitudes. It's interesting. 
So what you're saying in a sense, belonging, sense, sense of belonging is a, a contra power yes, against, yes. against yeah. fear. Yeah, that's the one story. The other story has to do with me more than with anyone else. I learned about the Holocaust from a picture taken, by the way, as it turns out, by Hitchcock of a concentration, wow. of a concentration camp in Europe. This was after the war, of course. Ah, oh, I didn't understand how come. Okay, yeah. Okay. Exactly, that's the answer. Immediately after the war. And by the way, the British were interested in the Holocaust because the Irish were courting the Nazis and they wanted to uh, control the Irish uh, nationalist movement. That was one of the reasons. And when I saw the, the ovens in Mauthausen concentration camp, I was shocked and I remember it till today. And this was after the war, namely after the Holocaust. During the Holocaust, the Israeli, the Jewish settlement in Palestine concealed the facts from the public. This is well-known fact nowadays, a literature about it, but the fact is it was concealed. I didn't know about the Holocaust at the time. I think and you're very now, courageous. I couldn't, I can't, I can't go. I can't be in, I can't, I don't think I'm capable of going. I mean, I don't think I'll survive it. I mean, it's too, for me, it's enough to me to close my eyes, you know, and to be yeah. standing in the rain with this. Uh... It, it, is, it is unthinkable. Uh, uh, people do not realize, they think of the Holocaust as genocide. Now, genocide is ubiquitous. It was in antiquity, it is still today, and the Holocaust is much worse than genocide. Because? Because it... Uh... Ooh, first of all, it was because killing Jews was... Uh, a national uh, obligation. Uh, there is a book showing that the fight of the Nazis against the Jews uh, hampered the war effort, and they went on with it till the very last day. How, that, how did it hamper the war effort? Can, can you <laughs> the trains were needed for other purposes. Wow. And still? And still, yes. They went on as a national duty as a national uh, obligation. There's no question about it. May I don't I know if you that? read the book, Mein Kampf. I can't. I'm so, I can't. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not strong as you are. I mean, uh, <laughs> the, no, no, no. I, I, the, the presence of evil. Yes, the book is evil. There's no question. And when you discuss, however poor and really low level it is when it comes to the Jewish question, which is chapter five, it goes lower than that. And it is amazing how bad the book is. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I I, yeah. I don't think, but uh, have you, I mean, have you been visiting Germany after the war? I mean, have you been? Oh yes, my mother-in-law was German. And I've been to Germany soon after the war, yes. And And, and how was the feeling, I mean? Oh, dreadful, dreadful, there's no question. I remember like now going on a Sunday in the middle of Frankfurt, empty streets because it was Sunday and I walked with a painter and we stopped at the uh, shop window of an artist and we looked at the paintings there and they were all realist because 
they were all abstract because the Nazis were anti-abstract art. And a man passed by and he pointed at these abstract pictures and said, these people should be vanished, destroyed. And he went on, I don't know who he was, he didn't introduce himself, just a man passing by and pointing at the pictures, the abstract pictures and said, these people should be finished. Meaning there is no sense and respect for human life. I mean, this is it, I mean, life- After, is... after the war, certainly. There is no question as is well known uh, uh, immediately after the war, uh, many Nazi leaders pretended to be anti-Nazi and took over important positions. Uh, not the prime minister, Konrad Adenauer, he was a decent man, but he himself complained that the country was full of ex-Nazis who took over many important positions. When I speak of the peak of Nazism in Germany, and I say it was in the late 40s, and people correct me. Wow. If you consider the fact that young people in the 30s went to the youth movement of the Nazi party, Hitler Jugend, they were called, and that there were people in position 10 years, 15 years later, what can you expect? And today, what do you think what's happening today? No, no, today is different. I taught in Germany very soon after the war, and I found that the students in my classes were of two kinds, either extremely gentle and sensitive or crude, and nothing in between. How did you deal with this? Hmm? How, How did, did you I deal with it? Oh, <laughs> first of all, I taught what I taught. I taught economics, by the way. I'm a physicist, but I taught economics <laughs> because <laughs> that was... <laughs> it was what is, was required. So it was very, very amusing. What can I say? Okay. I think you have deep thought about what should be the essence of Israel. I mean, here, the states, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that you think that we should, there are some issues that we should take care of. And I yes. think... Can you, can you share, because I think what you're yes, thinking- of course, I, I wrote a book about it. I say Israel has to be a normal country. Israel has to treat its citizens as equal, and it does not. It treats its non-Jewish citizens as citizens of second class. I, for example, think there should be a universal mobilization. And everybody looks at me and thinks pitily on my naivete. Can, can you tell? I, I'm not sure that most of the people understand what you're talking about. In Israel, about. there are two uh, weak groups, each 20% of the population, the religious Jewish and the non-Jewish. Because most Israelis are Jewish by descent, but not by culture, not by religion, not by practice. They are Jews because their identity can't say that they are Jews. That's something like that. And uh, I think these two weak uh, subpopulations have one thing in common, they don't serve in the military. People don't know that in Israel, religious people and non-Jews don't serve in the military. And I think they should. Do you think they want? Uh, it's not a question. Nobody wants to go to the military. No mother wants her child to be a soldier. I mean, no sane mother, let's say, let's put it. <laughs> 
Okay. Okay. So, so you think so? So, so this is so. What you're saying is that we are we have two standards here, and the outcome are devastating in many many senses to everybody, even to the ones that are you know you know considered as belonging to the you know to the the higher class or whatever. You see, this is what uh, Adam Smith discovered that discrimination is expensive to both sides of the discrimination. Oh, I didn't so know this. This is <laughs> What do you think it's cost, you know, the most, the more privileged one? What do you think it's cost, uh, you know, this group? First of all, they lost their nationality. Israel does not recognize the Israeli nation. Hmm. Uh, there is now a law which says this, which is to me amazing. Netanyahu affected one important thing, and that is the law that Israel belongs to the Jewish people. That is to say, a, a European or an American Jew has more stake in Israel than an Israeli Muslim, which I think is very unhealthy. Yeah. So you think we should, first of all, correct it. Do you think there is any chance that it will be done in the coming no. future? No. I, I think it will be done only when Israel will be on the verge of extinction, and nobody wants that. No, no one wants that. What else do you think we should change in our, you know, Israel? I mean, you know, we, we are... No, I think Israel is a wonderful place. I think it really is unbelievable what, what a wonderful condition we have out of sheer luck, not that we earned it in any way, but really to be an Israeli is very lucky. And yet we are shooting ourselves in the foot. By this. Okay. So do you think if... If we don't want to get to the verge of destruction, uh, what do you think? Can you think about any kind of social, you know, uh, movement? I don't know um, trends that will assist. Uh, you I know, would love to have it. Yes, I think any group that would fight for general mobilization is my heart. Is your heart okay? Wonderful. If you if you look into the future, like. 50 years from now, how do you think the world is going to look like? I have no idea. You see, the internet is such a marvelous yeah. thing, and it came out of nothing. It didn't come to replace anything. And it changed our lives so profoundly. I think it's something marvelous. What is, what is the most astonishing, you know, in, in your opinion? What the most Having a personal thing? computer that enables you to converse with somebody across the ocean and it costs you nothing. I remember telephone from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem was a big thing and costs a lot of money and so on. And nowadays you can converse with people in the United States without any expense. Or with people from Mars, right? Now I'm, I'm on Mars, so. Ah, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, you're quite right, yes. I'm joking, of Only for the Martians, yes. yes. <laughs> You don't know what, what, how wonderful it is. We have some Israelis here. So I'm joking. Anyway, <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> an Israeli colony here. Um, so, so what you're saying is that, so what you're saying, which is beautiful, is that we need so much imagi imagination regarding the future. And we don't really have it because we it's don't beyond. It. I, I'll give you a, an, an example, which is the yeah. most important one. Karl Marx observed the so-called capitalist market 
and he found that efficiency increases with concentration of power. And so he predicted concentration of power that should lead to uh, success of socialism. Excuse me, Agassi. Now, uh, the, the dynamo changes completely. The dynamo was discovered long before Marx was born, but it became technically available only with Edison. Yes. Ken, Vakasha, Odra, Vasha, Hatisha. And the we talked about Dynamo, the Dynamo. We yes, talked about. Yes, I remember. The fact. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. The fact that Marx's prediction was based on technology. And so he thought that he was certain in his predictions. And he forgot that technology depends on knowledge, and knowledge is unpredictable in principle. If I knew what will happen tomorrow in the field of science, then it happens already today. So in principle, you can't predict the future of science. Besides, there are always scientific revolutions, things that were considered utterly impossible, like splitting the atom. Atom means unsplittable. And the whole progress of 19th century chemistry and physics was atomic. And then in, 19, in 1896, somebody split the atom. Was Becquerel, he got Nobel Prize for it. Yes. So complete surprise that you couldn't imagine. Yeah. Or now with DeepMind, with you know, with the alpha, with with the process that they're doing with the proteins, it's it's it's, it's amazing. It's, you know, it's, it's going to change the, the 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 face of medicine and CRISPR and gene yeah, editing and yeah. Yeah. The of course, what we look forward is to the ability to process cellul celluloid. The moment you can do that, we solve all food problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what what still, what was the biggest surprise for you if you're looking in the last 50 years of science and 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 technology? What was you know for you the biggest uh, the biggest surprise or the biggest innovation in your opinion? The biggest innovation is the ability to synthesize. Noble gases. Really? Why? Why this? Why this? Because I I studied Pauli's explanation of noble gases, and it was marvelous explanation. And this very explanation created the technique with which they synthesized uh, all sorts of chemicals from noble gases. If you could have, if you are right now twenty years old, and you have to find to make a decision regarding at least what you're going to invest the 20, 30 years of your life in, you know, researching, you know. I would, where would the same as I did many years ago. Really? Wow. Yes. I'm a philosopher and I went to study physics and my physics professors really rightly disliked me. They didn't want to invest in me when knowing that I was going to leave the field. <laughs> But, but still, I, you know, I had, for example, I heard your discussion regarding Plato and Aristo, and you talked about the fact that science is always, even then, was replacing religious in a sense. I mean, oh, yes, quite so. Yes, quite so. Especially with Plato, yes. 
Yeah, so what I'm saying is that they it, it was worthwhile investing investing in you because <laughs> you, you took their ideas and, and, and you put it in the different context. <laughs> my science professor didn't think that way, yes. And you see, my ideal was Einstein, always Einstein. And Einstein was a philosopher. Einstein said, a scientist is a philosopher in overalls. It's so interesting. <gasps> really? This is what I didn't know that. That's what he's, say, he's saying, a scientist is a philosopher in overalls. He said, science without metaphysics to the extent that it is at all possible is muddled. Okay, you probably haven't met, met him in person, huh? No, no, I wanted very much to go to America to meet him, but I didn't have the money, so I went to England. When I went to America, he was dead a year. Do you speak with him in your head? Oh, all the, the time, yes. That's what Speaking I thought. And with Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell told in his bio, autobiography that he spoke with Leibniz and always told him he didn't know how important he was and how fruitful. Wow. So you have three people living in your head. Oh, yes. But mostly Faraday. I wrote a book on Faraday. Yeah, yeah. He was magnificent, huh? He was magnificent. He, he was on so many counts such a marvelous person. And he was so generous and so, yes. I the, read about, the, yeah, sorry. The, the most uh, funny story about him is that kids would meet him in the street and have a word with him and then run around the block to meet him again. Oh, really? I didn't know that. He wow. was childless. Yeah. And you know that, uh, you know, he went and when he didn't have time, so he went, to, when he had some time, he went to give, gave another lecture and mm -hmm. it, it was so, what is the explanation? I mean, I'm thinking about such a person who, who knows so much and, and, you know, curious and really want to learn all the time, but still he was so generous with his knowledge. Oh, yes. By so the way, he never took any patent. What? This I didn't know. He, he wanted to be a gentleman. As you know, he was from a lower class yeah. and he yeah. always played the gentleman. Yeah. But... But I, I, I think it goes beyond social convention. I think this kind of deep, uh, I think generosity, it lies in fundamentally understanding the human condition differently. Uh, do you think? Yes, yes. Uh, Faraday saw his salvation in the scientific world. And when he came to work for Davy, who was the leading scientist at the time, Davy looked at him with pity and said, in time you will learn how wrong your opinion about the scientific world is. And he never changed his opinion on the scientific world. And he always was stunned by the fact that he was so maltreated. Unbelievable, huh? Unbelievable. And I think he died senile because of that. In, how come? What, what do you mean? He wrote a letter to his only student. He had one student in which he said, I read a paper in which I mentioned and that brought my memory back and I am going to write two papers. And he wrote two papers. Wow. Because somebody mentioned him. Wow. He had all the medals possible as a discoverer, but not as a thinker. And his only student, Tyndall, wrote the book Faraday as a discoverer. That's why I wrote the book Faraday as a thinker. Wow. So what do you mean in the sense that if we are curious enough, we can create bridge which are beyond time and space. 
Yes. Even even with past, not only with future. Yes, certainly. Even with the past. Meaning in the sense that we are free from any kind of obstacles if we only look when I am asked what is the most important discovery that ever happened? I say the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs. Why the dinosaurs? Because that is a warning for us. Mm. Do you know what Margaret, when Margaret Mead was asked uh, when humanity was uh, was created, what uh, I would say, uh, you know, civilization or community yeah. or society? Do, do you know what she said? She said, I don't remember the, the exact date, so for, forgive me for that. But when she found in a cave somewhere that she was, you know, working, uh, a bone that was uh, somehow tied together, a broken bone. And she says that meant that there were people with this person and usually they might have left him to die. But the minute they, they decided that they will have to carry him and carried him enough and brought him, this is where civilization was born from her perspective. No, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. She has another very nice saying, never, never deny that a small group of people can change the world. Yeah, she well, said, that's, 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 for that's sure. how things happen, yes. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, our time is finished. It was such a great pleasure. And I was wondering if we can find another time and have another discussion on other issues. I'm at your service anytime. You're too kind. Thank you so much. It's, I learned I, so much. And I'm sure that all our, and hopefully next time it's going to be face to face. Gladly, gladly. Thank you so much. Shalom, Thank you shalom. so much. Shalom. Bye-bye.